Welcome to the Permaculture Podcast, episode 1545 of a listener-supported program. If you enjoy this episode or any of the others in the growing archives, become a member at patreon.com. In exchange for your pledge of support, you'll receive early access to episodes, exclusive members-only content, such as articles from Eric Tonesmeyer, and discounts to vendors including Chelsea Green Publishing, Field and Forest Products, and permikids.com. This podcast doesn't need huge amounts of money to keep going, but it does depend on those small recurring amounts in order to continue and grow. My guest today is Lisa Rose, author most recently of Midwest Foraging, which was supposed to be the basis of our conversation today, and we do touch on that some, but also spend our time telling stories about family traditions, place in the lands we feel connected to, and how foraging and food can return seasonality to our lives along with a host of new flavors, once we begin to leave the grocery store behind. There's also a digression in the middle about Nocino, an Italian sipping liqueur, and you'll find a link in the show notes to a recipe posted at Lisa's website, burdockandrose.com. Now then, on to Lisa Rose. I'll return after with a short review of her book and some updates. Then, Lisa, if you could give us a bit of your biography and background, how you came to the work that you're doing and foraging, and then we can lead into a conversation about your latest book, Midwest Foraging. Well, thank you for taking the time to chat with me today, Scott. Frequently, people will say to me, you know, how did you become a forager? How did you, you know, accumulate all of this, ex- these experiences with wild plants? And, you know, I, I guess I really can't identify one particular moment or training or experience. But when I received my um, copy from the publisher of Midwest Foraging, I flipped through it and looked and had the answer that, you know, it's been my entire life that I've been accumulating these just moments outside with people, with plants, um, in kitchens around the world, uh, learning how to taste things and be adventurous and share foods with different people. So it's just something that's always been a part of me. And I've, you know, probably now acquired the name Forager, but it's just been a real lifelong exploration of the world around me. And you say about being in kitchens and classes and things, have you been both studying and teaching this material for some time? My undergraduate work, I actually went to school to be a music major. And when I realized how much practice room time would go into that art and that profession, I was just sort of like, well, you know, I like to be outside and this isn't going to work. And um, I went into anthropology where I studied the rise of agriculture and the role of humans and as we you know really shaped what we eat and worked with the land around us and i've worked in local food systems i've had gardens i've run nature centers and you know the wild plants all along whether it's the weeds in my garden or trail running or hiking with my family that's always been a learning experience for me and i've always been sharing my passion for the natural world around me with others. So for a long time, I guess I can go back to as far as picking mulberries off the trail and baking pies in college or helping my mom can the wild grapes on the back of our hedgerow every fall for grape juice for the winter. So it's always been a part of my life. And has most of that exploration occurred in the Midwest? Uh, you know, I'm born and raised. My family's originally from Flint, Michigan, uh, solidly a, a GM Buick family. And uh, moving to the west side of Michigan, that's where I grew up. I grew up just a few miles from the Big Lake. 
um, having the blessed opportunity to grow up sailing, hiking in the dunes, hiking in the beach, maple, hardwood forests. After college, I moved away to the Bay Area, studied a bit in France, but I ended up coming home to Michigan because that's, you know, that's where my roots are. And that's where my heart is, is here in the Midwest in Michigan. As much your physical as your spiritual home? Yeah, you know, it really is. A couple of weeks ago, the last few days of summer vacation, I, you know, squeezed in some camping with my kids out at um, Hoffmaster State Park, which is a, if you're ever going through Michigan, I mean, it's it's basically a car camping adventure. It's not backcountry in the Tetons or anything, but it's where my parents let us just run rampant. Just like, I don't even think our parents came to check on us as kids. I think my cousins would come out and, you know, they'd go camping. I think maybe they left, you know, like the mandatory, this is 1980s. So, you know, the mandatory bags of uh, Jay's potato chips and bologna sandwiches while we would play for days in the woods and, you know, letting my kids ramble in the same way just a few, few weeks ago, untethered and just letting them go. It really brought a lot of things full circle for me. You know, I could look at the plants, I could taste the sassafras on my trail run, and I could feel the wind on my face. And having recently lost my dad, it was really kind of a spiritual moment of, of finding the place that is me. Like, you acquire experiences in your life. And, um, you know, I really felt like my life tastes like the sassafras at Hoffmaster State Park. And it's it's just, it was a really affirming and comforting experience um, for me. It's not just where my physical body lives, but I think when I pass, I hope to take residence up there in those dunes. It was one of the journeys for me is realizing that I am a hill and a water person, having grown up in Western Maryland in the Appalachian Mountains and then relocating to where I am in Pennsylvania, where there are all these mountains and hills to roam over and the limestone and the streams and waters and rivers that really resonate and create a space that is my own. Even though I've, you know, rambled a little bit and moved a bit further north than I, my original roots, in a way, coming to Pennsylvania for me and to these mountains was like coming home. And it's that sense of place that's interesting to me because of how we're able to connect. And I see that in looking through Midwest foraging, because there are certain things here that I'm familiar with that I can find in the area around me. But then there are other things that I've never seen before that appear unique to where you call home. And I think it is that sense of place. When I teach my classes, I really love getting people to turn inward and to reconnect with those memories a lot of them are childhood memories and it doesn't matter, you know, we're humans. And so we've acquired experiences throughout our lives, but, you know, and it makes up who we are and to tap into those and to really have that connection to place. And then too, if you're a transplant, a lot of us are transplants to different places to be open to making new relationships by way of the land. Like if you're new, if you're an immigrant, if you're new to Michigan, to be open to the smells of the, you know, the reticent earth in the fall, the smell of the water when the, you know, the winds kick up or the weather comes in. There are all the smells that, that are familiar to me, but might be new to somebody else. And so I, I like getting people to feel that way about the land that's around them. 
to help them, whether they've been there a long time or not, to connect with it and have a closeness or a relationship with it? Yeah, I think, you know, even something is simply if you have to move from your home and you have to leave if you have cultivated gardens. Um, this happened to me at one point. I left a, a nice, beautiful permaculture garden space and, you know, moving to a new home where you have the daunting task of rebuilding the soil making new relationships with the land and with the place. And there's some of that melancholy and sadness about having to leave, but how the wild plants and the new places can offer support and solace in that. Not, and not just wild foods. I mean, we have, you know, of course, that benefit from learning the wild edibles and to be foragers, but how plants can really help that transition become more familiar. And, and if you are naturally a plant person, that, that skill's portable wherever you go to, you know, in the world, even if the landscape's a little different than, than what you're used to. Those skills that you cultivate in one place you can take with you and use as a, a way to transition to the place that you now call home. Yeah, a coping mechanism, even if you will. I mean, and, and if we think about it for humans, as we became more mobile, or even, you know, for the, the more mobile communities, you know, that's, that's a huge skill. And it's a way of, of coping, relating and, and just moving on with life, you know, the more philosophical approaches to foraging. <laughs> the more that I meet myself where I'm at and walk down this road and explore these different ideas, the more that that philosophy becomes important, that it's not just about the skills, but also the stories and the non-physical knowledge that comes with it, the exploration of self and community as a result of it. I think it's nice that we can make a meal out of wild plants, but what really is profound is that transformation and you can witness it within yourself and you can witness it with peers that all of a sudden you can watch the land sort of take hold of them and change them and they've become these advocates for things whether it's just for the health of their family or planting a community garden or you know trying to to work in better harmony you know using some of the permaculture methods a friend of mine says how i became um really became an herbalist and have an interest in herbalism, that if the earth needs an herbalist, it will grow one. And I feel similarly about foragers and plant people that it helps transform us. And that to me is the biggest gift I've received from, from the land around me. I'm grateful for the meals it's given me, but I'm also grateful for it's how it's shaped me as a compassionate and empathetic human on the earth. So I'm, I'm pretty grateful for that. Do you find that it's that reconnection to the cycles of nature, especially you're a little bit further north than I am, but we still have four seasons, though I imagine you have more of the lake effect issues. Yep. Than I yep. <laughs> but that those seasons and watching plants push through the earth in the spring and then die back during the winter that returning to those kinds of annual cycles of life through the seasons, that that helps kind of change and slow down the pace of life? You know, I have a long experience in local food systems. And, you know, as we talk about seasonality and cultivating soil and building soil, here in the Great Lakes particularly, and in the Midwest, 
there's a role for those seasons. There's a role for, you know, to return the composting materials in the fall back to the earth, you know, so the earth has some rest in the winter. And, you know, you have to be a hardy person to live, I feel, in the Midwest where we have four seasons. And we're most healthful and vital when our bodies reflect those seasons. And it's easy in a 24-7 culture especially with technology and especially, you know, I'm really type A. So my body benefits, my family benefits to have longer nights for rest in the winter, to eat foods that are nourishing. I mean, to when I know when to lay off of some of my favorite foods that aren't local or foraged, like coffee, <laughs> and incorporate the rooting vegetables, the root vegetables of the burdock and the chicories and the acorns as a beverage, as the, those nourishing beverages. And the, you know, my book Midwest Foraging is about plants, but the value of hunted meats, of the venison, of, you know, the wild fishes, and adding those into my diet is seasonally appropriate when it starts to get cold and even bear fat and bear grease that I use topically on my skin in the winter because I'm, I'm a slight build and I'm always cold. You know, having that seasonality is, is something that I've added to my lifestyle and I feel I'm more vital because of it and I'm, I'm grateful that I can have a more seasonal life. With that seasonality in your root crops and preparing for winter, do you ferment any foods at all? So, yeah, one of my favorite, I'm actually known, my heritage is, is a you know, Jewish, white Jewish girl in Grand Rapids, I like to say. I don't take claim to any indigenous culture here locally. And we, there's, a, there's always a joke for that, working between cultures and valuing traditions. Um, I'm known as the pickle lady <laughs> around town. And so not just cucumbers, but, you know, making cabbages, making traditional pickles, um, using... Uh, the burdocks to make burdock pickles and kimchi and um, Jerusalem artichokes for pickles. You know, those some of those foods for me are really important um, in creating healthy microbiome and healthy, you know, stomach gut uh, gut microflora. So, you know, making those pickles that last us the winter time helps, of course, you know, from a, a physiological perspective cut through and digest the heavier meals we end up naturally eating in the winter time and keep our gut healthy. I love pickles. That comes up because I've been reading some books on fermented foods lately and just started some of my first, you know, wild ferments. And it's been fascinating to watch as things bubble and thinking about everything that I can put up for the winter and making some of those sour vegetables for my children. I love wild ferments. Um, Sandor Katz, of course, has a, he's a great resource as, you know, the fermentation, his fermentation expertise is awesome. You know, I love making wild, you know, when you get into fermented beverages, wild ciders, uh, wild apple cider vinegars, you know, using those crab apples from the, you know, just foraging outside right now, wild apples. And, you know, some people are quite particular as to the type or species or, you know, for me, it's like, well, just go by flavor and mix them all together and see what you end up with. Those foods are really, really important, you know, in the pantry and can take all different types of, you know, Hank Shaw, he pickles the black walnuts. That's something I want to try next year is to pickle the black walnuts. I make mine into an Italian sipping liqueur, Nocino, 
but um, pickles would be equally as nice as sipping liqueur. There's a tree on a property adjacent to where I live that will be dropping soon that I'll have to harvest and see about that. And what did you say the Italian was? The Italian sipping liqueur, Nocino. So traditionally, it's done a couple different ways. You gather the green hulls, the green hulled nuts of the black walnut. In Italy, it's the English walnut, but black walnut can be used interchangeably. Some have expressed concern that the juglone content in the black walnut could be deleterious, but I've made sipping liqueur for half a decade and I'm solid and around and I know others that also use the the black walnut, the juglans nigra. And you can extract those green hulls, cut them into quarters, put them into a ball jar or a, you know, they're, they're going to turn your hands black, of course, for those that have worked with black walnuts in the past, know that they stain your hands a dark, dark brown to black. So cut them on a surface that's non-staining, put them into a ball jar. And some people choose to use, traditionally, I think, a dry Italian white wine to extract the fragrance. And if if you go ahead and smell the green-hulled walnut, it has a really bright, crisp citrus flavor, almost, you know, just a, a really high note aromatic that it's just really a bright green, beautiful flavor. And that can get extracted into the wine or a basic 40 proof um, percent vodka or brandy if you prefer. And you can add flavors such as the the juniper berry, cardamom, clove, orange peel, add a little bit of cinnamon if you wish, and have those macerate over a six weeks time and strain it off. And it's a, a very delightful, nutty it's got a couple different depths, layers of depths to it. It's nutty, dark, you know, slightly bitter and astringent and tannic, which, you know, as a digestive aid can be beneficial if you're serving it, you know, around Thanksgiving time after 18 courses of delicious meals. It's always nice to have a digestif like the Italian Nocino. So it's, it's a kind of a fun beverage to try your hand at and extremely easy to prepare. Makes it easy for gift giving, too. And I pulled up a picture of it. It looks like it's almost black. Yes. The same colors that it, it, it turns your hand. It extracts, you know, a black, opaque beverage, sipping liqueur. You could even, I mean, if you wanted to go non-traditional, you could mix it with, you know, a dark cassis, um, you know, black currant liqueur to give it a little bit of extra dark berry flavor. And I mean, there. if you have a familiarity with using different foods in the kitchen. I love that because then transferring to be a forager and working with wild flavors, you can become much more adventurous using that experience to pair seemingly non-traditional flavors together to get really fun and eclectic results. So it's always fun to be in the kitchen with those that love to experiment and try new things. That transition from being someone who perhaps cooks and experiments with the things that we can find at the grocery store or farmer's market, and then slowly beginning to introduce more of these wild foods and flavors. Yeah, you know, um, I think the farmer's market is a wonderful place to get people to season their palate and acclimate their palate to new flavors my background has included working with children in urban garden settings and getting them to try new foods. And this applies to adults too, but you know, you'd be getting kids to try foods like black raspberries or blueberries, for example, foods that some kids in our cities have never tried before. And we're not just talking about wild foods, but 
you know, foods that I'd find at my everyday farmer's market. And sometimes the responses would be, you know, Miss Rose, this is nasty. Or even adults, I've watched try new foods and the face says it all. (laughs) I like to really kind of hold that and say, okay, you've expressed to me that the flavor might not be nasty. It might be unfamiliar to you. So can you say more about the reaction you're getting? Why is it getting this reaction? Is it spicy? Is it bitter? Is it texturally different? Is it fuzzy? Is it slimy or mucilaginous? You know, what is it about what you're tasting is different? Because if you think about it, the standard American diet, it only offers us two flavors, sweet and salty. So wild foods, which have their own spectrum of sweet, which sweet would be, you know, your wild pears or your wild apples or the berries, they're not as sweet as that glazed donut, by the way. Never met a glazed donut I didn't like. But in nature, you don't find things as so, especially in the Midwest, as so sweet or as salty. Um, We don't have an equivalent of kettle chips. You know, on the coast, you might get the bull kelp seaweeds that you might find. But in, you know, the Midwest, the most salty food you might come across are nettles. So, you know, getting people to really understand and, you know, what tannins taste like, a person that might be familiar with tasting wines can transfer that knowledge to tasting through some more tannic foods that might dry up your mouth and astringe your mouth and have different flavors. So it's really getting people to have a language and those mental reference points about what what foods taste like, not just wild foods. But then the wild foods, kind of like a hub, they have a receptor site to plug into. You can say, oh, bitter greens, bitter greens, the chicory, the dandelion, the, those taste like my cultivated endive or my radicchio. So people don't have to go as far to make those leaps into the wild food flavors. You make me think of two things from my own exploration of food. And one was moving away from sugar and how much sweeter the fruits that I ate became. Even though, yes, uh, I grew up in a family where, you know, a red velvet cake with a thick layer of sugar cream frosting mm-hmm. was was the end of every meal during the summer. We would start with fruits and watermelons and light things and then move to something rich and heavy at the end. But also with the bitter flavors of moving to some things like an arugula and then going out and harvesting wild greens and adjusting to that change from a light kind of a commercial bitter that I was familiar with to something that was much heavier and much more rough on the palate initially. But that in time, I think about it when I first started drinking whiskey, that initially whiskey or even beer for me was very hard to drink. Mm -hmm because it was so unfamiliar and it was very different. But then over time, adjusting my palate to those tastes that I could then explore the nuances of what I was experiencing. And that that same feeling, that same exploration also applies to foods moving further and further away from kind of the safe and familiar, the sterile aisles of the supermarket to these things that are different and new, but so fascinating and rich with history, flavor, and experience. You describe it very well. And I think what is also interesting, and like in the early springtime, when you head outside for a trail walk after the snows receded, and you see some of the early basil rosettes of the garlic mustard, 
or the dock and you, you stoop down to chew on them after an entire winter's worth of greens you might have preserved or, you know, pallid greens that we might be getting at the supermarket. And your body is so grateful for those more robust, real flavors that are connected to the earth. And your body just starts to crave those flavors. And I like to share with people after they share, you know, give me their faces of, you know, the scrunched up faces of distaste after they try the garlic mustard or some of the, you know, the more bitter greens. But I I really try to let them know that, that after a while, their bodies will start to crave those flavors because they are so absent in our everyday lives. And they're delivering to us nutrients. And this can't be quantified, but they're delivering a sparkle that we just don't get. I mean, you can get it at the farmer's market, but I feel wild foods, those that you can pick, you know, as you're walking down the trail, they have that certain vitality that can't be found any other way, picking it immediately. Of course, gardeners have that similar experience. But I even think there's something more to it when they're wild and foraged foods. The sparkle quota. <laughs> they should add that. The, you should, the USDA should add that in the, the food pyramid to, you know, the sparkle quota. That should be a thing. That should be a food group. <laughs> I think of the richness with my children when I was first teaching them about the simple things that we could harvest from the yard. And it began in the garden with strawberries and blueberries, but then moved to things like violets and dandelion greens. And watching as something would come up in the earliest of spring and the look on their face when they would pluck that first flower and run up to me and daddy they're here we can we can go eat and then leading me over and we would begin to pick a few here and a few there and then as the season moved on the proliferation of some of these flowers and other plants and getting to see that excitement each day on my children's face and then moving through from one plant to another as we moved from month to month and new things appeared and others went away you know, my children have acquired the same experiences. Mine are entering preteen years, so you never, there are those moments where you actually wonder if you're doing an okay job. <laughs> but, yes. then, but then you'll have these moments of, of brilliance where, you know, your daughter will say you know, to a visitor in the garden who said, may say something about the weedy dandelions and my daughter, you know, I overheard recently say, no, we can't pull those because we eat those as salad in the spring and in the fall. And it's, it's, you know, as a parent, you're just like, oh my gosh, it's going to turn out okay. (laughs) But, you know, they don't even realize what they're learning, that seasonality of how, you know, things used to be being outside and in nature. I'm really glad that I'm able to impart those experiences and those reference points for my kids that they can carry into their adult lives hopefully, you know, as they peek out from behind their gadgets or the things that afflict us from modern life that sometimes seem inescapable, even though we might try, even to foragers, those things (laughs) that take over our lives in different ways. I took a a trapping class several years ago. And that was one of the first things that the instructors were talking about was the use of smartphones and all the hiking apps that they were using to tag where their traps were and taking pictures because in Pennsylvania, you have to check your traps every 24 hours. uh And sometimes when people become sick, they can't get out there. And so they would send their GPS coordinates and all their pictures to their friends to go check their traps for them. And how even for 
people engaged in these what seemed like very traditional skills, the way that they were blending technology with it. And I had a listener contact me once who was looking at doing something similar for raising foods in urban environments and for urban foraging. You know, I love technology. I'm not one to shy away from it. I feel similarly, there's some wonderful things about technology and there's some things that we have to be mindful of with technology. I feel similarly about conventional medicine. A lot of us have been have benefited from you know, advances in modern medicine. At the same time, I know the value of mint tea. I know the value of nibbling on bitter greens, or even if you're in a pinch to nibble on the goldenrod to help with stomach distress from dairy or how it could help with seasonal allergies. So I think if we use these things mindfully and can it can help communicate and, and it can help bring us closer that said, I don't think it replaces any time that we can spend out for a walk and the value of unplugging and letting our minds wander and, you know, to experience boredom so we can reconnect with, you know, the, the world around us and even just, you know, to be creative because without that rambling space, we can't create new inventions. We don't have the white space for it. So, Yeah, I'm always interested to see what new things come along. Without podcasts, we wouldn't even be talking today. Grateful for that. I think it's just the long view. Yeah, how does it transform our society? I mean, technology is just doesn't just mean electronics, but technology are stone tools. Technologies are atlatls. Technology, you know, it's as humans evolve and develop tools to cope with the world around them and to communicate. I mean, how are text messages different than smoke signals? I'm not sure. I mean, you know, they both need some sort of fire. and (laughs) So again, another conversation, but very philosophical things that a forager can think about while gathering the wild apples along the ground or the wild pears and acorns. And then as they bring those home and turn them into foods or beverages or medicines, the way that those will be shared in their community to help share new stories around perhaps a campfire, whether it is real or virtual, the space that we share with one another. Yeah. And I think, again, I think that's really the essence of a lot of it. You know, we're rapidly seeking to make meaning in our communities. We don't have the storytellers that other traditions have had, you know, in a very isolated, fragmented urban environment that we have. We're trying to make different connections bringing communities together and making new friends. Just spent an an entire weekend with herbalists and plant people in southeastern Detroit area. And a lot of them were people I'd met virtually that I had the chance to meet in a physical space and on a physical plane and to unplug for the weekend for the most part and share stories and get to know one another and exchange thoughts on plants and different uses of plants and different ways of preparing plants. You know, it's really, and I, online for foraging groups, there are many, you know, Facebook is one of those platforms that bring foragers together. It helps facilitate ID. It helps facilitate the sharing of recipes. Those are all really good things. I, I don't feel it'll ever replace the need for books or, you know, I, I have a secret field guide and cookbook habit. You know, I think you buy one, then all of a sudden you're surrounded by thousands of, of books. And then all of a sudden you then have different levels for insects and soil building and, and permaculture. You know, you start to expand on all of the different subjects. 
you know, I think people get concerned that technology will replace the basic print guides. And quite honestly, I love my apps and I love the use of my camera phone and my, you know, my, my digital cameras, but you know, the role of a notepad and a box of colored pencils is the best teaching tool for botany and for my mind to remember color and leaf arrangements and flower structure better than any camera could ever use. So it's just the, the, again, the scope of technology and how we integrate all those tools in our practice to, to relearn some of these basic traditions. We've gone through a variety of subjects from the philosophical to the practical where we come from, as well as how to make Nocino. And I really appreciate the time that you've spent with me so far today, but I don't want to keep you too long uh, past our time together. Do you have any final thoughts for the listeners that you'd like to share before we bring the interview to a close? I think, you know, it's fun because as a, as somebody that loves a subject, I could gab with everybody, my plant people, for even non-plant people, for hours at a time about wild plants and foraging and interweaving it into my daily life and how others can bring it into their lives. Frequently, I'm speaking to audiences of varying abilities and capacities, and I really love to see more new non-traditional audiences come into the world of wild plants. I get really excited when, you know, the mom of small kids from the suburbs, you know, she wants to get a copy of my book and take it and pack it in her picnic basket so she and her children can go through, you know, the park just identifying wild plants, whether it's plantain for mosquito bites or learning those black raspberries, how to ID them along the way to the quote-unquote expert forager, which I kind of laugh. Expert means, you. yes, you might be well adept with your, your botanizing and, and very good in the kitchen, but the funny thing about plants is that we'll never be experts. Like the natural world gives us so much content to be inspired by and to keep us on our toes. But I really love uh, that people have the ability then to step into this framework and get other people excited whether it's, you know, at a, a church group or whether it's in the inner city through a book club or, you know, just maybe you're a part of a, a running group. I'm a, I'm a runner. And um, every time I stop along the way to snack on berries, uh, especially during a race, I've got runner buddies reminding me that they're foot races and not berry picking adventures. But afterward, they always come back and ask me why I was stopping to or what I was stopping to snack on along the trail. So, you know, I think just to grow the passion for the world around us, I'm excited for the future and I'm excited for how we can incorporate the wild world into our daily lives, whether it's bit by bit or, you know, tilling up your front lawn and adding you know, berries along the hedgerows and composting and, you know, designing your own permaculture space for your homestead. It's a good life when you have plants around you. And if people would like to find out more about you and your work, where can they go? How can they get in touch with you? I'm online, of course. So my writings, my musings reside at burdockandrose.com, B-U-R-D-O-C-K and rose. 
burdock is one of those favorite plants of mine. And rose, of course, is my birth name. And uh, burdockandrose.com, feel free to send me an email. I teach classes all over the Midwest. Most of them are local right now as my children are in school. But um, I also love to connect people to plant people where they're at or if they have questions. So always reach out by email and those links are all available at my website. And your latest book is Midwest Foraging, which is available from Timber Press. And I'll include links to that in the show notes for people to be able to find it. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing the word about my book. It was fun writing and I'm in process working with Timber to write a second volume, Midwest Medicinal Plants. So that should be out within the next year and a half in a very nearly exact same format as Midwest Foraging to get people to understand how plants can be used for our everyday wellness as addition to food. Then when that comes out, we'll have to have you back on and we'll sit down and talk about that. Yeah, I'd love to. Well, thank you, Lisa, so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for taking time to chat, Scott, and I look forward to staying in touch in the future to share our wild plant journeys. And that was Lisa Rose. You can find out more about her work at burdockandrose.com and pick up a copy of Midwest Foraging from the publisher, Timber Press. When it comes to Midwest Foraging, I agree with the quote from Sam Thayer that graces the cover, a beautiful book that any forager in the Midwest will want to own. Adding to that, as there is an overlap in plants from this book to where I am in the Mid-Atlantic, it's also a good addition to bookshelves in this region as well. The layout and format you'll find leads to a book that you can, as Dan DeLion recommended, spend time with to leisurely browse and read to build a familiarity with plants, which you can then begin to recognize as you go about your daily walks or journeys into the landscape, whether those are city, forest, farm, yard, or backcountry. The entries, which are arranged alphabetically around a common name, include the Latin binomial, which is very important for proper discussion and identification, along with which plants are edible, a short introduction, and one to a few color pictures. Some of the common features in this book that you'll find in many other field guides include descriptive text, how and what to gather, how to eat the plants, and, where necessary, cautions about poisonous plants that have similar identifying features to a given entry. Where this book stands out from some earlier field guides is the inclusion of information on where and when to gather, something we need to know so that we can go at the right time of year to look for a particular plant and which parts we can harvest. With that note about harvesting, there's also notes about future harvests. This particularly caught my attention because using those entries we can wildcraft ethically to ensure plants are available for ongoing use and so we can tend to Zone 4 and the wild places. With 115 plants included, Midwest foraging covers a lot of ground and is a good first choice for a beginning forager in the region covered to supplement courses and classes you might take with someone who's more knowledgeable and to begin to familiarize yourself with these plants. For more experienced folks with a larger library, this is a valuable companion to include with your other field guides. So pick up a copy at timberpress.com or your local bookseller where it lists for $24.95. If you enjoyed this conversation with Lisa and would like to add your thoughts to the discussion or your own review of Midwest Foraging, leave a comment in the show notes at thepermaculturepodcast.com. You can also contact me if you have any questions or if there is a way I can assist you on your permaculture path by emailing show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, calling 717-827-6266, or dropping a note in the post. 
That address is The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dolphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. As this episode comes out, a reminder that there's less than a month until the drawing for the permaculture design course at Joshua P. Seeker's farm, Verde Energia, in Costa Rica. You still have time to enter, but as this is limited to not more than 50 entries, get yours in soon. Find the full details by clicking on the Costa Rica tab at thepermaculturepodcast.com or by clicking on the link in the show notes. An update on those show notes for mobile users Whether you use iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, or another podcast catcher, thanks to some feedback from listeners, you will now see the complete show notes in the episode feed. That includes links to make browsing and connecting easier when you're on the go. You should be able to just press on one of those and have it open up in your browser automatically rather than having to do all the navigation that's been required previously from just receiving the synopsis. Part of that update did require a change to the RSS feed for the podcast, so if you go into your app... Whether desktop, mobile, or otherwise, you will now only see the last 75 most recent episodes available, or about a little over a year of content. If you want to explore deeper into the past shows, there is an archive tab at thepermaculturepodcast.com that lists the available previous episodes. And if you haven't heard it yet, just before this came out, I released a piece announcing formally information about the book I'm writing with Ethan Hughes, because that project is on, and I'll be visiting the Possibility Alliance here in the next couple of months to sit down with him to record many, many hours of discussion that will form the basis for that book. If you like the earlier conversations with Ethan and want to support this creation, more information is available at thepermaculturepodcast.com forward slash book, and please share that link wherever you connect with others, be that email, social media, text messages, so that more people can find out about what it is that we're doing. Another book that also could use your assistance is from past guest and good friend of the show, Adam Brock. He is working on putting together his complete treatise on people and patterns in permaculture. You'll find a link to his campaign also in the notes for this show. From here, for the next interview, Peter Michael Bauer returns to discuss human versus conservation rewilding. Until then, learn about plants, eat wild foods, and spend each day creating the world you want to live in by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.